On March 30th, 1981, President Ronald Reagan was leaving the Washington Hilton Hotel after a speaking engagement when he was shot and seriously injured during an assassination attempt. That was 40 years ago Tuesday. WTOC's Blair Caldwell had a chance to speak with Dr. Randy Botner. Today, he's the chief of cardiology at Memorial University Medical Center in Savannah. But 40 years ago, Dr. Botner was a fourth-year medical student on his first day of an emergency room rotation at the George Washington University Hospital in D.C., where President Reagan and other wounded members of his party were taken minutes after the shots were fired. On this WTOC News podcast, Dr. Botner gives his account of that afternoon when President Reagan was rushed to the emergency room and how the men and women at the hospital helped save the president's life. Here is Dr. Randy Botner. On March 30th, 1981, uh, in Washington, D.C., then-President Ronald Reagan had just completed a speech to the AFL-CIO at the Washington Hilton Hotel on Connecticut Avenue. He was getting ready to leave via a rear service entrance uh, to get into his motorcade to go back to the White House. Um, at 2.27, he started to leave that entrance, and he was accompanied by his chief of staff, Michael Deaver, by James Brady, who was his press secretary, by uh, uh, Robert Wanko, who was another member of the Secret Service, and Timothy McCarthy, who was a, a third member of the Secret Service. Also at that entrance were two D.C. police officers, one of whom was Thomas Delahanty, and then behind a little rope barricade uh, located near the ed exit was a, 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 a group of people, mainly news people with cameras and, and uh, press people, and a small group of other onlookers. Including in, included in that group was John Hinckley Jr., who a couple of weeks previously had just purchased a Rome 22 caliber six-shot revolver at a uh, pawn shop in Texas. He loaded that revolver with six long rifle 22 Devastator bullets, which contained a small uh, explosive charge to inflict maximum damage when they hit. As they left the exit at around 227, James Brady was slightly ahead and to the left of President Reagan and had the great misfortune of walking directly in front of John Hinckley just as he pulled the revolver from his pocket and fired six shots in rapid succession in 1.6 seconds. The first shot, unfortunately for Mr. Brady, he walked right into it and it hit him right above the temple. It exploded and took the fragments and the part of his skull into his, skull, into his brain. The second shot hit Thomas Delahanty in the back of the head and lodged next to his spine. It did not explode, but it was lodged next to his spine. The third shot missed completely. The fourth shot hit Agent McCarthy in the upper abdomen on the right side as he spread himself out to protect the president. The fifth shot hit the side of the limousine and didn't do any damage, and then the sixth shot is the one that hit the side of the limousine and ricocheted off and hit President Reagan, fracturing his left rib. It hit him under the armpit and entered into his left side of his chest into the left lung. It did not explode. In the meantime, uh, not in the meantime, but as this was all happening, Jerry Parr, the, the chief of the Secret Service, violently pushed President Reagan into the back of the limousine and President Reagan hit his head on the on the armrest, it's reported, 
and they were ma making off to get to the White House. And of course, they were in contact with the, the, the um, command center in the White House. And Jerry Parr reported that he thought that Rawhide, which was the code name for President Reagan, was okay. But President Reagan started to complain of chest pain. He thought that uh, Jerry Parr broke his rib when he pushed him into the car. And then he also had some blood come out of his mouth and he thought he had cut his lip. So Agent Parr checked him carefully in the limousine, or carefully as you could in the back of the limousine that's speeding back to the White House, and uh, couldn't find anything. And he, and he rated ahead that he thought Rawhide was okay. Then President Reagan apparently coughed up some blood and then coughed up some more blood that was tinged with air and sputum. And that's when he actually said to uh, Agent Parr that he thought maybe he cracked his rib and it punctured his lung. So Agent Parr radioed ahead to the White House that they were going to divert to the um, emergency room at George Washington University Hospital. So this is kind of where my story starts. Um, I want to make sure that everybody knows that I am not responsible for President Reagan surviving uh, this suicide attempt. I had a very bit role in the whole thing and I was mainly there as an observer. I was a fourth year medical student. I wasn't a doctor. I was two months away from graduation. It was my very first day of my emergency room rotation so I didn't even know where the bathrooms were let alone much of what was going on down there. Um, and to give you a sense of, of what it was like, I have to just give you a brief description of the emergency room itself. At that time, the hospital was located on the southeast corner of Washington Circle, and the emergency room portico and ambulance entrance was on the circle itself. The main entrance was on 23rd Street, and the, major, and the main hospital was off to the right down 23rd Street. And the emergency room, like many, was shaped like a, like a horseshoe. And the open end of the horseshoe on the left side, you had the emergency room entrance and uh, the, the ambulance portico coming through a small waiting room. And on the right side was the entrance to the main hospital. On either side of the horseshoe, on, uh, inside the emergency room, were five rooms on each side. And at the back end were the two trauma bays. And they were numbered counterclockwise, 1 through 12, the trauma bays being 6 and 7. In the middle of the emergency room was an area, a work area for the doctors and nurses. And it had desks and the desks had counters on top of them. And then there were entrances on either side and at either end. And at the back end of the work area was a wall that actually obscured the view from the work area of the trauma bays. And on that wall was a, a board with everybody's name, the room number, their name, and what was wrong with them and what was being done. There, there were no privacy issues at that time. So this is where my story gets interesting, I think, at least this is the story that I have to tell. I was sitting there with three other people. Um, we were doing our usual business for the people that were in the rooms, and the, the charge nurse was standing at the end of the work area near the board, and the phone was on the counter. The phone rings. It's 2.29. She picks it up, and, she, and it keeps ringing. And she puts it down, and she pulls out a princess phone from behind some books on the counter. Uh, and she goes, my god, it's the White House. So we all stop to look at her. And she picks up the phone. She turns bright red. She doesn't say anything. She puts the phone back down. And she says, 
the president's motorcade's coming. We've got three gunshot wounds. There was this moment of just stunned disbelief. She then immediately went and got and spoke to Dr. Joseph Giordano, who was the chief of the emergency room at that time, got some orders. They sent out the calls to the uh, trauma teams, which at that time trauma, was, trauma responses were still in their infancy, and it's not the well-coordinated, choreographed response that you have in a Trauma One Center like you have at Memorial. But the, the calls went out to the trauma teams, and that notified the hospital and a number of different ho doctors and, and nurses that there was a trauma response, and it happened to involve the President of the United States, which, of course, got around very rapidly and attracted a lot of onlookers. She then came back, and this is now by 929, I mean 229, 30 in the afternoon to the, where I was sitting, and me and the third year medical student, she looked at us and said, I want you to go out to the waiting room and I want you to tell the people who are out there to leave and go somewhere else. And if they look like they're sick, then just admit them to the hospital. Which begs the question, how does a medical student admit somebody to the hospital when you're not even a doctor? But that question became very moot very quickly. As he and I walked to the door on the emergency, on, on the ambulance side of the, um, of the emergency room where the waiting room was, we stepped on the magnetic mat that opened the doors into us. And there, standing three feet in front of us, was President Reagan. And he was supported under the arm, each arm, by uh, Secret Service agents, Jerry Parr on the left and the other agent, whose name I don't know, on the right. His jacket was open. There was a little spot of blood under the left armpit. And I was on that side, so I had a very good view of that. And he looked at us. He was ashen. He was as white as a sheet. And he was bent forward just a little bit. And this is the part where my wife says I over-dramatize it, but I was there, and this is how it happened. He looked up at us, and he said, I can't breathe. And he started to collapse. His right leg started to go down. He pitched to, the, to the, his right, and the third-year medical student caught him before he hit the ground. The four of us turned him upright, turned him over, set his face up, and a nurse came over and supported his head. And we carried him as quickly as we could to the back to Trauma Bay 6 and laid him down on the gurney. He was head, head backwards in, uh, in, the, in the bay, feet out. Uh, Jerry Parr, the Secret Service agent, and the other agents set up a, a final command checkpoint right at the foot of the bed there. And the doctors, Dr. Giordano in particular, went to work on him. And there was a lot of activity around there, as you might imagine. I was able to watch from around the corner. Of course, I got out of the way at that point because I was just a medical student and uh, got out of the way, but stayed around and was able to see Dr. Giordano very rapidly after the clothes re clothing was removed, working and very rapidly making a, uh, a decision that something was wrong with President Reagan's chest. And although I didn't see him actually insert the chest tube, the bottle that that was the chest tube was attached to was beneath the gurney and I could see that very clearly when people's feet weren't in the way and within a couple of minutes that two liter bottle had filled nearly to the top with blood which 
which meant that he uh, probably had lost at that point about 40% of his blood volume, which is why he basically collapsed coming into the emergency room. How he walked from the limousine to the emergency room is rather miraculous in itself, uh, but that's why he collapsed. Um, the bullet had struck a pulmonary artery and the blood was being pumped into his chest under pressure and it was causing the left lung to collapse and then it was pushing into the mid portion of the chest and collapsing the veins so that blood couldn't get back into the heart and so he had almost no blood pressure. And when uh, Dr. Giordano inserted that chest tube and drained out the blood, the blood pressure started to come up but most of his blood was in that bottle on the bottom of the, uh, under the gurney and so they had to get blood and I, what they do for the president, wherever he travels, there's a hospital on call and there's blood that's on hold for him if there is any type of an accident like that or anything happens. So at one point, as, as this went down the road a little further, there were people, there were chiefs of services literally squeezing bags of blood. I at one time saw three bags of blood being squeezed into President Reagan, all simultaneously just trying to get more blood into him to you know, compensate for what he had already lost. Now meantime, as he's getting stabilized, the other trauma teams are coming into the emergency room, as are a whole bunch of onlookers. As you might imagine, word got around real fast and everybody wanted to see what was going on. So the place started to fill up and it was not a big area. And there were probably 90 to 100 people now in here and it was loud and it was getting hot and it was tense and it was from from a secret service perspective it was very dangerous and so uh agent wanko who was you know if you ever saw the pictures at the hilton you, he would be he would be the secret service agent who after the first shots were fired pulled an uzi machine gun out of a briefcase he was in a three-piece suit with a heavy mustache and he's holding the uzi machine gun up there scanning over the crowd looking for other shooters. He came to the emergency room and he took over the security in the main body of the emergency room while Jerry Parr was at the, at the foot of the gurney. And they, after a couple more Secret Service men showed up, they set up checkpoints at the entrances to the emergency room. Well, this was now a very dangerous situation from a Secret Service perspective. And they had to get control of it. So, Agent Wanko climbed up on the desk in the center of the island and he was holding that Uzi machine gun and he said, if you don't belong here and you don't get the out of here, there's going to be hell to pay. And I'm sitting there, actually standing there looking up at that machine gun, listen, looking at him tell, saying that, wondering if I belong there as a fourth year medical student. Fortunately, I decided to stay. The third-year medical student, I think, might have left because I never saw him again. And there was two streams of people leaving on either side of the emergency room to get out now that he had said that because there was no doubt he wasn't kidding around that there was going to be hell to pay. And then things started to settle down. But also at that time, just before that time, they brought in Agent McCarthy, who had been shot in the liver and as small caliber bullets frequently do, when it hit his liver, it stopped spinning and it started tumbling and it 
diverted up towards his diaphragm and then backed out into his abdomen. So he had a massive abdominal wound, was bleeding badly into his, into his abdominal cavity, and he was in severe pain and very unstable. And then they brought in James Brady, who, as I said, had been shot point blank right above the temple. There was a bloody four by four on his forehead. Um, he was in a coma, uh, as you might expect. Uh, there was felt to be nothing to do because it was felt that that was a fatal wound. And how he survived is a miracle because I saw his chest, his uh, skull x-ray, and there were dozens of bullet fragments and bone fragments scattered throughout his brain. So how he managed to ever uh, recover in any meaningful way is amazing. Shortly thereafter, um, as things started to settle down, was another um, moment for me that uh, will, uh, I won't forget, which is when uh, Nancy Reagan was brought in because she was brought in through the main hospital entrance and I just happened to be on the right side of the work area when they brought her in and I just happened to look up and it was direct eye-to-eye -eye contact from me to her but I'm sure she didn't see me. Uh, the look was, uh, as you might expect, just sheer terror and disbelief on her face. She was brought around to where President Reagan was. I didn't see their interaction at all. Um, I don't know if all the quotes that were attributed to him or her at that time really took place or not. I, you know, there are things that were probably said to the public for consumption, for to 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 lessen the uh, you know the the concern, quiet the markets and quiet the world and all of that. Uh, whether or not those things really were said, I have no, no way of knowing. Um, at that point, though, we're now about maybe 20, 25 minutes into the whole thing. It's starting to settle down. Uh, Agent McCarthy was by far the one who was, whose life now was at most risk, so he was the first one to leave the ER and go up to the operating room um, and have su successful surgery, found the bullet, took it out, stopped the bleeding. Uh, President Reagan was then next to leave the ER to go up to the OR. Uh, as I understand it, um, Dr. Ben Aaron, who was the chief of cardiothoracic surgery and the chief medical res chief surgical resident, D Dave Gens, who I knew uh, from prior rotations, he was a fifth year surgical resident. I was still like a med medical student, as I said, but I knew him and he was a, a young guy and a nice guy. He was involved in the surgery. They all had to wear, as I understand it, bulletproof vests because the bullet that was inside of Reagan was explosive and they had to take precautions themselves. And it took a while for Dr. Aaron to actually locate that bullet, uh, but he finally was able to locate it and retrieve it and extract it from President Reagan's chest. President Reagan then by report, I wasn't there for these, these things. These are now, what I'm telling you what I know from having heard this and having been there at the time was then taken to the recovery room. And overnight, one of the more miraculous things that uh, what kind of happened while we were there was on the fourth floor, they had um, taken a segment of rooms on one side of the fourth floor of the hospital. And as I understand it, knocked down a couple of walls in between the rooms and redid that and made it into a presidential suite overnight and a presidential office with a suite for him to recover. And um, they did that all in, in 12 hours to, and then of course there was the Secret Service details that were there for the next 13 days while President Reagan was still 
there as a patient in the hospital. Uh, there were sharpshooters on the roofs, um, and there were checkpoints at all entrances to the hospital. For a couple of days, the emergency room was actually closed down to any new business. Uh, but then after a short period of time, we kind of got back to normal. After 13 days, uh, he survived and went back to the White House, I think, to the White House. And, um, and that's more or less is the story of the ER uh, from the time we received the phone call until uh, President Reagan left the ER and went up to the operating room. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to give you, to tell you that side of the story. Can we ask you some questions? No. Please. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, a medical student, you see that look on that nurse's face. I mean, what's going through your head? The first thing was shocked, almost disbelief, but the look on her face was so real that you knew she was dead serious. And then we kind of looked at each other like, is this really happening? And, but you knew it was. Um, and, uh, and then very quickly, I mean, it, in moments like that, time dilates and you feel like uh, things are going in slow motion. They're going very rapidly, but you feel like they're going in slow motion. It's that fight or flight response where every, every sensation is heightened uh, by the adrenaline rush that you're, you're, you're getting. And, um, but that look w is unforgettable. The look on her face was absolutely unforgettable. You were how old then? Let's see, that was 1981, so I was 27. Hair? I did have hair. <laughs> I did have. I had, I had hair. Not. I was thinning, but I had some. And what, what was your thought when um, you know you're standing there and they say that the Secret Service says if you don't belong here, get out. What's your thought process? Walk us through that. Well, way. like I said, when I was when you were first first day of your rotation and you're a medical student, your first thought is, do I belong? But uh, look, I also, I, I, I honestly had the presence of mind to, to realize I was witnessing an historical event. And uh, you know, I had a chance to be there to see what was happening. So many people in the hospital wanted to see what was happening. And I was technically assigned there. So I said, well, until some, I said to myself, well, until somebody tells me that I've got to leave, I'm gonna stay, and, I, and what I did was, I, I actually did serve a purpose other than just helping to carry him to the back. Back then we didn't have electron, you know, there wasn't digital uh, x-rays and there wasn't pneumatic tubes, so I brought x-rays to and from the radiology department and blood specimens to the lab and you know, stuff like that. So I actually did serve a gopher role, which was you know, about as much as I was capable of doing under those circumstances at my level of training at that time in my life. So it was, um, it, it was both a, um, when, 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 it, when, I was, when we were told, you know, when, I, when people were told, get out, it was should I or shouldn't I? I think the third year medical student may have left because I don't remember seeing him after that. Um, but I decided to stay and I'm glad I did. So you're varying things like the president's X-ray, right, and I saw his X-ray, and that was a big point of concern because the bullet had entered; it fractured the left seventh rib, and it entered, and it didn't tumble; it just went straight in. And on an anterior, posterior, front-to-back X-ray, where you don't have any depth perception and side-to-side side or how deep into the chest it was, 
the, the tip of the bullet was overlapping the heart border. So they couldn't tell for sure if it had actually hit the heart or if it was behind the heart or in front of the heart. And I frankly don't know whether it was in front or behind. It, was, it, was, it did not hit the heart. I, the, I, my, my suspicion is it was behind the heart that they had probed and, and found it and pulled it out. But all I know is that on that x-ray, there was a lot of concern about whether the heart had actually been penetrated by the bullet. Can you talk a little bit about the dichotomy of like, I'm living history, but I'm also training in medically- Well, there was, there was no training uh, going on there. This, was, this, was, this wasn't that. This was, I, I wasn't learning uh, anything about medicine at that point in time. I was, I was mainly an observer. I was witnessing an event I mean, there was a little bit of, you know, putting in a chest tube, perhaps, and, you know, but I didn't know really what was going on at the time. I didn't have a chance to examine him. I certainly had no experience. I wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have been able to perhaps uh, diagnose what was wrong without, not certainly in the, in the short period of time that Dr. Giordano had, had diagnosed it. He knew exactly what was wrong. He knew that there was a problem in the left chest and he needed a chest tube, whether it was air from a pneumothorax or blood from the tension hemothorax that it really turned out to be. He couldn't tell just by, nope, just by looking at the president or examining him, but he knew there was a problem that needed to be addressed. So he put that tube in and that decompressed the chest and that allowed blood to get back into the heart, which then allowed the pressure to come up some. But now we had, now we had this problem of half the president's blood is in a bottle on the floor of the emergency room what do we got now we got to transfuse and you know in the in in here at here in, in in our er when we have something like this it's a massive transfusion protocol where they're just pumping massive amounts of blood into a person who's bleeding out it was a back then um it was not nearly as refined um especially many of the doctors who were doing emergency room shifts were not trained in emergency medicine it was they were mainly, mainly just doctors who were taking emergency room shifts. Fortunately, Dr. Giordano, who was a surgeon, was, you know, he was in the emergency room and he knew what to do. And, uh, yeah, and he was experienced in the emergency room, don't get me wrong, but he was also a surgeon. So he knew what to do. And, um, and so he died, made the diagnosis quickly. And truthfully, the guy who saved President Reagan's life was Jerry Parr because had they not diverted immediately to the emergency room, had they made the mistake of going back to the White House, um, President Reagan would have collapsed well before they could have gotten him back to the yard. Whether he would have survived that, who knows. But for sure, he would have been in a lot worse shape than he was in when he finally got to the emergency room if they had not just comp diverted completely and gone to the emergency room without going to the White House first. Describe what a chest tube looks like. It's just a plastic. It looks like um, a smaller version of a garden hose, except that it's um, clear, uh -huh. and so you know you can see what's coming through it. And I could see the end of the tube under the gurney attached to the bottle, and I could see the blood still running through the tube into the collection bottle underneath the underneath the gurney. And was President Reagan sedated at that point? Well, see, I wasn't back there. He was not sedated uh, at, at when he arrived, obviously, and he wasn't sedated very quickly. I'm sure that Dr. Giordano didn't have a lot of time to deal with any of that, just made probably some lidocaine and made an incision. The incision isn't big, mm -hmm. maybe a half an inch to an inch, and they just stick the tube right in there 
and just whatever comes out, if it's air, it's air. If it's blood, it's blood. If it's fluid, it's fluid. Mm -hmm. But whatever comes out just drains down into the bottle. And then that helps you make it a diagnosis. It made the diagnosis immediately because it was just pure blood. And, um, and so the, it was obvious that what this was was a tension hemothorax. He, tension hemothorax means it's, it's blood in, in the space. The space uh, is the pleural space. The, the, line, the, lung, the lungs are inside the chest cavity, obviously, and they slide along the inside of the chest wall. The lining on the outside of the lung and on the inside of the chest wall is called the pleural, it's called the pleura. And there's a small amount of lubricating tissue in there. So when we breathe, our lungs slide up and down alongside the walls, but it's a potential space. If something gets into that space, it can take up room. And if it's blood, it's blood. Now, interestingly, and you know, the bullet entered his chest. So it went into his, through his chest and into the lung and severed the pulmonary artery. And so blood is spurting out into his chest under pressure because the right side of the heart's pumping the blood into the lungs and now it's going out into the chest. So somebody say, well, he had a hole in his chest. Why didn't the blood come out the hole? And the only, reason, the only thing I can say about that is the tissues of the chest wall itself formed a, a one-way valve. So that it just closed it and the blood could not get back out through the bullet hole. And so it built up pressure inside the chest until it collapsed the lung, and now it was pushing into the veins and not allowing blood to get back to the heart, which is where President Reagan collapsed because he was standing upright and he had no pressure to get from his heart to the top of his brain, so he collapsed. Once you're laying down, you can get by with a low blood pressure, but if you're in an upright posture, you, can't, you don't have any flow to your brain. And uh, once that pressure was relieved and the blood came out, now, now blood can get back into the heart and the pressure, excuse me, the pressure comes back up, but you have the problem of continued bleeding. Now, there's an old, ex old saying in, in medicine, all bleeding stops eventually. And this bleeding slowed. It didn't stop, but it did slow. It slowed to the point where he was stable enough to, you know, make sure that he could go to the OR um, without you know, any more emergencies, surgeries, or having the procedure done, trying to do the procedure in the emergency room, doing it in a controlled environment of the operating room. But getting that blood out of his chest was crucial for him to survive. Otherwise, he couldn't get any blood into his heart, and he couldn't, he didn't have any blood pressure. So, correct me if I'm wrong, but you guys didn't even know that he had been shot when he came through. That we, was still we, kind of a mystery. Well, except, except for the phone call. Okay. The president's motorcade's coming, we've got three gunshot wounds. You know, you knew, you knew that, that there were three gunshot wounds. And you knew it was the president's motorcade. And I mean, you didn't know specifically that it was Reagan, because they didn't say it was President Reagan, but, they, but the, 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 the nurse was, the nurse's comment was, the president's motorcade's coming, we've got three gunshot wounds. And then, obviously, when you step on the mat and standing closer to me than you are, half the distance that you are to me, is the President of the United States um, and looking like he's about to die and really is about to die. Um, well, we, we knew at that point it was the President. When you were going to tell those patients, I mean, you were really doing a job that was kind of cleaning up loose ends Correct. and then ran into the president. That's right. I mean, what was that like to recognize this is my first day on the job and I'm staring <laughs> at the president of the United States? Well, it, it, it was, uh, again, there was that moment of 
time stopping and time dilating and realizing, you know, you're looking at the President of the United States three feet away from you and um, it's just, it's hard to, it's just hard to put that into words. You know, initially there's that moment of shock and, but it was, no, there was no question who it was. I mean, it wasn't like he couldn't believe it. It was, it was no question who it was. And it was just, it just happened so fast at that point that, you know, him not being able to breathe and collapsing and, and then us carrying him around to the gurney, um, get him onto the gurney and get him to the, the people who could take care of him. Um, that's really, you know, the, all that the four of us and the nurse, the five of us could do to get him to where he could get taken care of. And that was your first day in the ER rotation, right? But had you done other rotations before that? I'd done many rotations, okay. but, but not, not in the emergency room. Okay. Um, that was my very first day down there. And it was, I was two months away from, it was my la second to my last month of medical school. Mm -hmm. And um, was you were, so you were at GW for four years at that point. Was that something that you were all made very aware of, that you're the hospital that takes care of the well, president? Well, I learned subsequently that when the president is in Washington, D.C., the presidential call is rotated between George Washington, Georgetown, and the Washington Hospital Center. Mm -hmm. uh, agent, I mean, uh, police officer um, Delahanty was taken to the Washington Hospital Center. And I don't know whether it was because he was a D.C. policeman and he went there and the other three were all part of the White House contingent and they came to, the, to GW. I had also heard, I don't know if this is right or not, but I had heard that it was Georgetown's turn, but they were another mile to a mile and a half away. You know, Washington Circle is seven blocks from the White House. You know, it's literally 1600 Pennsylvania Ave Avenue versus 2300 um, I Street, or yeah, uh, 23rd Street and I Street. So at um, any rate, that's where, you know, we were very close anyway, and so I think he just diverted to what he knew was the closest emergency room. Who was that, that, that evening, like when you were off your ship, <laughs> who was the first person you talked to about this? I called I call him home. Now, my wife, I actually spoke with my wife. She, um, well, she wasn't my wife at the time. We got married a couple months after that, mm -hmm. just after I graduated. She was, she worked there and she was on the fourth floor of the hospital. She had a lab up there. And she has she had some stories to tell too, but she's not here, so she won't be able to tell them. Uh, but um, anyway, I called her, and we were, we actually called back and forth at, at times. When, once things settled down, I was able to talk to her on the phone and you know kind of talk back and forth about what was going on. And also, once things settled down, I was able to go out into the waiting room. And now, now Washington Circle had filled up with TV trucks with the antennas. It was just wall to wall media. Um, I don't think there were, I don't, I, don't, I don't recall in 1981 how many of those were like, um, I don't think CNN existed at that time, but it was just wall-to-wall -wall trucks out there. And I'd go out into the waiting room and look up at the TV and listen to what the people were talking about and realize that what's going on in here and what they're talking about are completely different things. And they must have been receiving information, either hearsay information, or they were getting information from the White House, which I'm sure was doing its best to try to tone things down to keep a panic from occurring. Um, you know, the whole thing with, the pres with uh, Vice President Bush being recalled from Dallas um, and Al Haig at the White House saying, I'm in charge here 
for now until the vice president gets back. You know, there was lots of, there were so many different things going on all at once. And now that things had calmed down in the emergency room, you could kind of take a deep breath and you still knew what was going on and what had transpired and what was being reported and what was actually happening and had happened were not the same thing. But it was, um, I called my mother and father too at the time and I told them, you know, guess what? Uh, guess where I was today? Uh, and, uh, you know, I was in the emergency room and helped carry President Reagan to the back. Oh, come on. No, really? <laughs> oh, come on. No, really, I was. It was, you know, they, they were obviously a little bit surprised. Say where, to say. where are you from? New York, originally. New York City? New York City. Yeah. Okay. This is That's that where they were. No, they, they lived in Atlanta. Oh, they okay. had moved to Atlanta a long time before that. That was in 72. Okay. You know, nine years ahead before. Tomorrow's 40-year anniversary of this day. Looking back, 40 years to reflect and kind of talk about this and think about it, I mean, where do you sit now recognizing that happened and this is where we are now? Well, obviously, it's, it's it, you know, all the principals are dead. Uh, President Reagan died. Uh, Pre Secretary Brady died. Uh, Jerry Parr is dead. I don't know about uh, Agent Wanko and McCarthy. I assume that they're still alive, but I don't know. Um, I don't know about all the people that were in the emergency room. I know that uh, Dr. Aaron is, is deceased. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, the, the, reason I, the reason I really wanted to kind of tell this story, I've told this to many different people, bits and pieces of it, because um, it's, it's a hard story to tell, particularly to try to put it into the, con the context where uh, someone who wasn't there, which is almost everybody, could have a sense of what exactly it was like to be in that situation at that moment in time. And uh, to have an opportunity now, 40 years later, to look back on it, in some ways I was able to, you know, refresh my memory about some of the players, the names and things like that. Um, but um, to, to be able to, to, to give people a little bit different angle on what happened, because I've seen, I've read the, the books, I've seen the movies. The, the things sort of stop at the door uh, of the emergency room, and then there's a little bit of what happened, but not really all that much. And then he's survived surgery, and then there's the aftermath. But there was 20, or 20 minutes or 30 minutes or so of one of the most tense periods of my life. And I think everybody else's as well. I've got a question. Um, how has this, uh, this situation impacted your life? Well, um, other than, you know, uh, if, 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 if something like this makes you a minor celebrity amongst your very small, in the very tiny little puddle that I'm in um, of people, uh, I guess I, in that regard, you know, because I was there, it's a little bit of, you know, I'm a little bit of a, I, I, I don't, that's the wrong word. I don't even want to say that word. I'm not a celebrity. I happen to be in the right place at the right time. And I can give people an insight of something, of an event that everybody who's my age or who's, you know, 50 or older can remember and remember usually where they were the moment they heard. It's like, the, it's like when President Kennedy was assassinated for me or, or when the Challenger exploded or 9-11. You know exactly where you were when you heard those things. And most people who are my age or, old or young, maybe a little younger, older, 
knew exactly where they were and that they've never heard this part of the story. A few people have because I've told it to other people along the way, but the vast majority of people have never heard this. And um, this is what happened. And it was, uh, it, it, there, were, there was a, a lot of circumstances that, you know, were lucky that President Reagan survived this attempt on his life. As I said, had he not, had Jerry Porn not diverted that limousine to the ER at that moment, he probably would not have survived, and uh, and we'd have a different history of our country. Um, so. Can you remind us a little bit of the things that were different then? Like, um, I'm picturing you in scrubs. Which nope. Was no, regular clothes. You were regular, regular clothes. Okay. You wouldn't have had a cell phone because no cell phones. Exist. No cell phones. Did you have a pager? Uh, yes, had a pager. Okay, had a beeper. So you had a beeper on you. And just a suit, would you wear? No, just a, 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 a shirt and a tie, and mo medical students wore short white coats okay. to kind of differentiate them from real physicians who would wear a long white coat. Okay. So I had my short white coat on, my stethoscope around my neck, my beeper on my belt, and um, no cell phones, like you said. And, uh, you know, none of the modern accoutrements of a, of a, of a modern hospital. That hospital has actually been torn down and rebuilt across the street now. So the old GW University Hospital and the ER are long gone. It was uh, raised and they opened the new hospital in 2002 and raised the old one. I, I believe it's gone. I don't think they left it standing. And um, at any rate, uh, yeah, but it was, it was, yeah, you, you had, you ran, you ran with x-rays. You, you physically carried the x-ray back and you put it on a, screen so that you could look at the x-ray. And I had the opportunity to see both President Reagan's x-ray. I got, I ran it and ran it back, President Reagan's x-ray and um, James Brady's x-ray of his head. I didn't see Timothy McCarthy's x-ray, um, but I did see those two. So that's something like Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that, that kind of um, it's, brown it's, film? It's just, it's just a grayish, Oh, blackish yeah. film, mm -hmm. stick it up on the lighted board and look at it on the lighted board, right? Okay. So you're the one who ran down there and got it, stuck it up on the board for everybody. Well, I brought it back to the doctors and gave mm -hmm. the appropriate doctor the x-ray, but I had a chance to see it with them, too. Uh -huh. you so know. you're coming down the hall? <laughs> well, but uh, not so much that, but just got back to the emergency room, gave it to the doctor, like Dr. Giordano for President Reagan, and I can't remember who the doctor was that was seeing um, Brady, but gave it to them and they threw it up on the on the board and I was there with them and looking at it along with everybody else. You know, you mentioned about um, you couldn't really say, you didn't hear what people were saying in the room. So there was one famous exchange where Reagan was uh, supposedly joking. I can't remember what the joke was. The joke, what, what, he, si what he was reported to have said, two things. Uh -huh. One was, um, he was reported to have said to Dr. Giordano, I hope, I hope you're all Republicans. And Dr. Giordano, who was not a Republican, um, said, Mr. President, today we're all Republicans. And then the second exchange was with um, Nancy Reagan, where uh, when she came, he apparently said to her, um, honey, I forgot to duck. Now, he may have said those things. I don't know. I wasn't there to hear any of that. I was too far removed from, from being able to tell. I have my doubts, but you know, uh, it, it could have happened. <laughs> Can you talk, do you think this experience on that first day of your rotation in the final months of your residency, I mean, 
Did this make you a better doctor? How did this shape your career? It didn't. Um, it, it was just part of me. It's just part of of my life. I mean, it didn't change. You know, I still did my internship and residency as I would have, and I don't think it made any difference. Um, you know, it was an interesting story to tell when people when the time came up there, you know, and sometimes the time would come up and something would happen and it would trigger telling the story. And my wife and I got to be pretty good at tag teaming it because, as I said, she has facets of it that, you know, she told and we got pretty good at that. Um, but it didn't really change me in terms of how, I'm a, I'm a cardiologist, I'm an interventional cardiologist and, uh, you know, I'm not a trauma surgeon. It didn't make me go into emergency medicine or anything like that. Um, I, I don't take care of gunshot wound victims. The, you know, our doctors at, at Memorial, they're, they're, they're light years ahead of, of the average physician in terms of dealing with these types of situations. So uh, it didn't change my career trajectory, but it was one heck of a first day in the emergency room. And just when you look back on your career now, how does that day rank? in terms of like your your experience in this field and like is it number one is it most memorable where is well, it well it's 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 kind of a sad thing to have to say that the most memorable thing that ever happened in your career happened before you ever became a doctor you know uh, i've had many 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 memorable moments um, as a cardiologist helping people out totally different circumstances but none n not no hardly anybody has an experience like this where, you know, an historical event unfolds within minutes and you are a witness to it. You're there. You're a teeny little part of it, but you're there to observe the whole thing. And um, so, you know, it's just, it was just one of those coincidences of life um, that happened. And it happened to me. I have a quick question. I know you tell this story to residents and to medical school students and stuff. When you tell it, and you tell them if they're in a position like this, do you give them any type of advice on how to handle themselves or what they should be doing? Well, I'll tell you, that, that not from this, not from this um, but the most important piece of advice I ever got <coughs> as in my training, and this now happened a couple of months later when I was an intern. I was in the Air Force. And I was in my second month, I was in a, a rotation in the inter intensive care unit. And um, a patient came in who was bleeding, um, intestinal, had varices from hepatic cirrhosis, cirrhosis of the liver from drinking. And those people develop what are called varices, veins in the esophagus that enlarge. Uh, I don't want to get into the details of why, but they bleed a lot. And this man was bleeding. And I went in to see him, and while I was in there, I don't want to get too gross or graphic, but he vomited up a great deal of blood, and I, I panicked. And the nurse, who was probably younger than me, but more experienced than I was, said to me, Doctor, you have got to get control of yourself. And that's a piece of advice that I have never forgotten, that any time you're in an emergency situation, the first thing you need to do is take a deep breath and gather yourself so that you can make decisions and, and, and keep things in perspective. And that's a piece of advice that I have given 
innumerable times to younger physicians that the most important thing to do in an emergency is to take a deep breath and gather yourself before you start to try to deal with this. You've got to kind of, you've, you've got to kind of bring yourself together and keep it together and keep your composure in order to deal with emergency circumstances. And that's what happened in that emergency room. Thank God it was Dr. Giordano who was there. Now, there were probably other emergency room physicians who could have handled it, but keep in mind that not all emergency room physicians were surgeons, and some of them were just regular doctors taking regular shifts in the emergency room, because that's frequently how it used to be. Now, emergency room doctors go through a residency. They go through a, 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 training, a, a, a training program that is directed strictly at emergency medicine. And you don't find internists and you know, general doctors taking shifts in an emergency room like you did back then. And I'm sure Dr. Giordano, you know, this is the President of the United States, this man's life is in his hands. He's got, he's got to make the right call. First thing he's got to do is not panic and maintain his own composure. And he did. And um, President Reagan survived. President Reagan would recover from the shooting and go on to win re-election in 1984. The others wounded also survived. The man who fired the shots, John Hinckley Jr., was found not guilty on all counts by reason of insanity and sentenced to a mental care facility. He was released from inpatient care by a federal judge in 2016. Thanks for listening to this WTOC News podcast. More on this story can be found on our website, WTOC.com. You can get the latest news and updates from the Coastal Empire and Low Country every night on the news and all the time at WTOC.com and on WTOC's social media pages.